to be with you all, and I thank you and your elders for the invitation to come this morning. Um, as was already mentioned, we know just a few of you here. The, those we know the best are Randy and Nanette, as they have been with us for many years, um, up until just recently when they moved down here to Casa Grande. Um, so with us in, in Mesa at Cornerstone Church. And then uh, Alan and his wife uh, from many years ago, a, a big part of Cornerstone Church as well before they um, were involved here. So it is good to be with you. Um, I am one of the elders there at Cornerstone. I've been one of the elders for about uh, six or seven years now, uh, but my wife and I have been part of the church for um, 11 years, I think, 11 or 12 years. So um, good to share this morning with you in the Word of God with you. We're going to look into Colossians chapter 4, so I encourage you to, to turn there if you've got your Bible, Colossians chapter 4, and really just focusing on one verse this morning, and that is verse 2. Uh, reading through Colossians, um, recently I was struck uh, by, you know, at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, how often Paul repeats this command to his readers that they be thankful. Be thankful. In chapter 3, if you begin looking at verse 15, there's three verses in a row right there that you will see in each verse. Paul exhorts the church to be thankful. And then continuing on a little bit further, start of chapter 4 in verse 2, Paul again commands the readers to be thankful. And certainly this is not something unique to the letter of Colossians, but throughout the other epistles of Paul and, and other epistles throughout the Bible um, and other books of the Bible, especially uh, the book of Psalms. We read uh, from Psalm 107 just a moment ago and from all throughout the Psalms we see over and over this command for the people of God to be thankful. Uh, clearly, God wants and expects you and I to be a people known and characterized by gratitude. So that when I think about you and you think about me, or your friends, your colleagues, uh, your classmates, when they think about you, at least one of the things that should stand out to us and stand out to them is that we are a people who are maybe strangely and persistently thankful. In other words, to be unthankful is a very unchristian thing to be. It's a very unchristlike thing to be. And I know that does sound quite serious put that way, and it should, because it is a serious thing. None of us should be known for a complaining spirit. None of us should be known as being gen generally uh, pessimistic in our attitude. That is, again, very unchristian. It is unfitting and out of place for a child of God. Paul puts it that way in, in Ephesians 5, in fact. Beginning of, of that chapter, you might remember where Paul talks about certain types of speech that is unfitting, he says, unfitting for a Christian. Instead of being characterized by that kind of speech, he says we should be characterized instead by thanksgiving. But it's one thing to say that we should be thankful. 
it's another thing to understand why we should be thankful. And so that's what I want us to think about together this morning. Why should we be characterized by thankfulness? And of course, there's, there's many very obvious reasons um, why we should be thankful in certain times where it makes sense uh, for us to be thankful, very easy to be thankful. Like, for example, when someone shows exceptional kindness to us, um, it's easy to be thankful at those times. Or when God supplies what seems to be miraculous provision for some very serious and uh, urgent need that we have, those are times when I think we find it natural to be thankful, to be grateful. And those are very good reasons uh, for our hearts to be filled with thanksgiving. But they're not the, the reasons I want to talk about this morning. Because if we're to be a people characterized by thankfulness, as God's word commands us to be, then we are going to need greater and stronger reasons than those. Amen. You see, if we're only grateful when people are kind and generous to us, then what are we when they're not? Or if we're only thankful when God meets our needs with some miraculous, abundant, timely provision, then what about when he doesn't? What about when we feel our needs going unmet? Right? What will our attitude be then? The point is that if we are to be characterized by a spirit of thankfulness, then that must be grounded in reasons that are not just circumstantial, that don't change with the changing tides of life. There must be other reasons than those, right? E reasons that don't ebb and flow, reasons that we can stand on, whether we are enjoying a season of plenty or we are just looking for the end of another long season of want. Whether all is going well, everything maybe seems to be falling apart. Is there anything that can sustain a spirit of thankfulness when life is hard, when life is sad, when it's filled with tremendous disappointment and brokenness. In other words, is there anything that can sustain a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness through all that attends real life, real life in a fallen world? That's the world that we live in. And the answer is, of course, yes, there is. And it's those things I want us to think about this morning. I've chosen Colossians 4.2 as a starting point because it was seen in this verse how Paul puts prayer and thankfulness together. Seeing that, that got me thinking more about what it is that sustains a Christian's gratitude and thankful heart. And why it is that we are to be more than anyone else in all the world we as Christians are to be known as a thankful people. So begin just reading verse 2 of Colossians 4. Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, grammatically speaking, the focus of this verse really is on prayer. The primary imperative, the primary command of this verse is that Christ's church be steadfast in prayer. But then to that primary command, Paul issues two supplementary commands. 
that clarify how we are to pray and the attitude that we are to maintain as we pray. Specifically, Paul says that our prayers should be attended with watchfulness and with thanksgiving. Watchfulness and thanksgiving. Now, in this verse, Paul is commanding thankfulness in the context of prayerfulness. But as we get into this, we're going to recognize the reasons for being thankful in prayer are reasons that we are to be thankful always. Uh, which means that there are reasons that we can cling to, that we can cling to regardless of our particular circumstances. We can cling to them in good weather and bad weather, in good health and bad health, in plenty or in want. These reasons stand unmoved by any of the changes or troubles or trials or even tragedies that we meet with in life. And we'll get to those reasons in a moment, but first... Let's think about this primary imperative that Paul issues here in verse 2. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Paul is urging his readers, which is not just those Christians in the church in Colossae, that is also me and you. He is urging us to keep on praying, to continually go to God Bearing our hearts to him. Asking of help from him. Now, that is not all that prayer is. Uh, Prayer is more than supplication. Prayer is is more than asking God for help uh, on behalf of ourselves or on behalf of others. Prayer is communing with God. And it may be... um, Manifest in a lot of different ways. It might be opening our lips in prayer, uh, in praise, and in adoration of of God, and thanking Him for His gifts. Those gifts that meet our our temporal needs, or most importantly, that great gift of grace and mercy that meets our deepest and most eternal need that has been lavished on us through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer encompasses all of that. But the kind of prayer that Paul has in mind specifically here really is prayer of that first type. It is not prayer of praise, not prayers of adoration, or even what we might call prayers of thanksgiving. Not those, but prayers of petition, prayers of supplication, where we ask God to move and to work on our behalf or on behalf of our brothers and sisters, where we plead with God to help us. This is the kind of prayer that Paul is referring to here. And we know that because of what Paul says in the next breath. He has just said, continue steadfastly in prayer. Then he adds, being watchful in it. The kind of prayer that Paul has in mind is is prayer that is attended by watchfulness. And what are we to be watching for? Well, for God's response, for God to hear, and for God to act. It's not that we simply throw up our petitions to heaven, but that we are asking God to work, and then we're actually watching 
We are waiting. We are expecting that he will work, that he will. It's the kind of praying that asks of God and pleads with God and then keeps our eyes open with the expectation of seeing God really do something. That is prayer attended by watchfulness. Another clue that Paul is referring specifically to petitionary prayers and not to prayer of praise or adoration or thanksgiving. Uh, Not that we should not also be praying those types of prayers. We absolutely should. It's all throughout scripture, but it's just not Paul's focus here. Another clue for that is that in verses 3 and 4, which follow verse 2, Paul suggests something that they should pray to God for, a petition. He says, pray for us too. Pray for us too. That God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. The point is, Paul is telling the church to be persistent in prayer, particularly in prayers of petition and supplication. He is telling them not to stop, not to give up presenting their requests to God. These are prayers that acknowledge that we have needs, that we need help, and we need God to intervene. Prayers of petition are prayers that we raise, particularly, especially when all is not well. When we are worried, when we are feeling overwhelmed, when we are tried and tempted, when we are discouraged, when we are made aware, sometimes very painfully aware, of our inadequacy to be and to do all that God has commanded us to be and do. It is when we are confronted maybe with sin in ourselves or sin in others. It's at these times in particular that we raise prayers of petition. And it's at these times in particular, Paul says, that we, you and I, are to be thankful. We are to be thankful to pray such prayers at such times with thankfulness in our hearts. And so the question again is how or why? How can we be thankful in these moments when we are sensing most keenly our need? for God's intervention, and are compelled to plead with him for it. How can we be thankful in the midst of those circumstances that bring us to the end of ourselves, those circumstances that that force us to look beyond ourselves and beyond our own resources and our own wisdom and our own strength? How can we be thankful when all is not well? Well, those are questions that we want to answer in the time that we have here this morning. And I I will begin by acknowledging that there are many, many things that could be said in answer to those questions. I will not try to say it all, uh, for which you can be thankful, uh, because that would keep us here a very long time. But I want to just highlight three points, three answers, three reasons 
why we can and should have a spirit of thankfulness in our hearts, even in the midst of those difficult and trying circumstances, those circumstances that, that drive us to our knees in desperate prayer. And the three answers or reasons are these. We can and should be the most thankful people, first, because of the character of God, and then second, because of the promises of God. And thirdly, and finally, because of the sovereignty of God. Let me just repeat those one more time and then we will jump into them. We can be thankful and we should be thankful. No matter how desperate or trying our circumstances are, we should be thankful because of the character of God and the promises of God and because of the sovereignty of God. So if we begin here with this first point, the character of God. If you think about your life as a Christian, and you think back on those moments or seasons when you were most given to prayer and most fervent in prayer. I think all of us have, have had seasons like that. And we could say we wish that would be all the time, but the reality is... Um, there are seasons and times where we are more fervent than others. And if you think about when that was, I suspect they would probably, those times would probably correspond to, to times that you might describe as especially hard. Times when you were coming under a lot of stress or pressure, maybe feeling a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what things are going to look like in just another week or in another month. Now, are we going to have money to pay our bills? Am I going to have a job? Are we going to be okay? Is our family going to be okay? Is, is mom going to get better? Is our son or daughter going to get well? And wrestling with a lot of anxiety because of that. Or maybe your most fervent and consistent praying corresponds to seasons of great pain. You know, whether that's physical bodily pain, perhaps uh, some chronic pain or illness that you are dealing with even still, or perhaps the emotional pain of a relationship that's been broken, or of a marriage that feels nearly broken, or a son or a daughter that's abandoned the faith and now wants nothing at all to do with you, or the pain of guilt that weighs on you and gnaws at you for sins that you have committed or addictions that you've never quite conquered. You know, it's one thing to understand why we might be prayerful in times like those. But can we also be thankful in times like those? Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. When the circumstances of life around us or a fresh look at the ugly remaining power of sin within us brings us to the end of ourselves and drives us to our knees in prayer, can we at these times be genuinely thankful? Paul says we can. 
And not only that we can, but that we ought to be. But how does that happen? How can we be? And this is where we do turn to the character of God. By reminding ourselves that all of those things that bring us to the end of ourselves do not just bring us to the end of ourselves, but bring us somewhere else. They bring us to a throne of mercy. They bring us to a God of mercy. I can be thankful in that the God that I most desperately need, the God that I turn to in prayer to express that need, is a God full of mercy, a God full of compassion and kindness and pity. And we need to ask ourselves, will such a God not help? Will he be deaf to the prayers of his children? Will he be deaf to my prayers? Will he not care? It would be hard to be thankful if when the storms and trials came and we lifted up our voice to God, if we did not really know whether he would listen to us or what his disposition toward us might be. It would be hard to be thankful if the only one who can help you is someone you're not really sure wants to. But our God is not like that. He is not like that. He tells us over and over in his word that he is not like that. That he is a God of mercy and he delights to show his children mercy. As was read a moment ago, which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus said that in the context of encouraging us to pray, encouraging us to ask, to seek, to knock. And he rooted that encouragement in the character of God. That God is kind. That God is good. And you know that, don't you? In, in some of the last words that Moses spoke to Israel before his death. Deuteronomy 33, Moses pleaded with the Israelites to take comfort and to take courage in the character of God. And especially to know that this God is their God and that he is for them and that he truly cares for them. He says, there is none like God, O Yeshurun. Oh, Yesharun, that's another name for Israel, kind of a poetic form of, of Israel. There is none like God, O Israel. There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. Moses is talking to the people of God, a people that God redeemed for himself. And guess what? We are that. Aren't we? The church 
is that a people that God has redeemed for himself. And listen to what he said. Such is God's love and care for you. See how his heart and his compassion go out to you. Moses said, the eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Happy are you. Blessed are you, O Israel. Who is like you? A people saved by the Lord. Who is like you? Who is like you? That question is one that comes up many times in Scripture. And it's most often a question that we hear directed toward toward God and concerning God. Moses asks at different times. The psalmists ask. uh, Maybe most memorable is the prophet Micah asking, Who is like you, O God? Who is like you? But here Moses is not asking God. He's looking to the people of God. And he, he says, he asks them to consider, who is like you? Who is like you? Who in all the world is so blessed? That is a question that we need often to ask ourselves. Especially when we are not feeling particularly blessed. When life is dealing hard blows, when friends are not friendly, when doctors deliver bad news, when you're worried about how you'll meet basic needs for your family, or when your marriage is in trouble, or when you're struggling with with parenting, or you're struggling with sin, In all of these things, pray. But in praying, don't forget that question. Who is like you? Who is like you? So favored and cherished by God. The object of his love. You are. If you are his, then you are. So then will he not hear your cries? Will he not help? He will. So be encouraged and be thankful. And then moving on now to this second point, for a spirit of thanksgiving to be sustained. You know, we've said we need to remember the character of God. But secondly, we we must also remember the promises of God. I can imagine some people thinking... With regard to this previous point and everything that was just said, thinking that, yes, God is kind. Yes, God is merciful and compassionate. That's all very encouraging. It's great, wonderful stuff. But maybe it's going a little too far to say that he actually desires to help us in our every need. Because the reality is, you might pray for your marriage, and your marriage might still fall apart. You might pray for your kids, and they may never turn in faith and love to God. Or the first of the month might roll around, and and perhaps God did not actually supply what you needed for rent. 
And so it might be argued that to say God is kind and merciful can really only encourage us, encourage us so far, which is to say not very far. And I think those are, are legitimate thoughts and questions because it's true that we might pray to God for help and yet God does not always give us the help that we have asked for. You've experienced that, I'm sure. I've experienced that. Bad things still happen. Hard things. Tragic things. And so how do we reconcile that with Jesus saying that God is not a father who gives serpents when his children ask for fish? Or gives a handful of gravel when his children ask for bread? Jesus said that just as we earthly fathers are determined to give good things to our children, our God is even more determined to give what is good to those who ask him. But it doesn't always feel like God has given you what is good, does it? There is a temptation to resolve that tension just very superficially and callously. To say, well... If it doesn't feel like God is giving you what is good, it's just because your definition of good is wrong. Right? We're like kids who just want candy. But God is that knowing father. He knows better to give you just candy. He will give you broccoli and cod liver oil instead. Because he knows that's really what's good for you. Now, sometimes that illustration can be helpful. So if you've used it, I'm not criticizing you. I've used it myself. But sometimes that illustration is not very helpful because it can come across sounding very simplistic and also callous. And it may give us a, a bit of a distorted view or a diminished view of God. Now, it is true that God... Uh, God's definition of goodness needs to be um, our definition of goodness. Our definition needs to be shaped by what God calls good. That is true. And it's true that we need to expect God's kindness to manifest itself to us in accordance with what he's actually promised and not just according to what we want. But, when talking about our thankfulness being rooted in God's promises, what I don't want to communicate is that everything that we considered a moment ago in that first point about God's love, God's compassion, God's mercy, his cherishing of you as his precious son or daughter, whatever encouragement that we might receive in contemplating that amazing truth that that all needs to be reined in now. That all needs to be tempered by the cold reality of God's promises. And if you hear anything in this second point, then hear this, that the compassion and kindness and mercy and pity that God has for you and me is not held in check by his promises or held back or restrained by his promises or diminished 
in any way by his promises. Instead, God's promises to you and me are their very expression. His promises perfectly, fully, wonderfully express his heart of love and compassion and mercy toward us. And so we're not tempering our expectations of how God might display his love and mercy and care for us. We're not tempering those by a consideration of his promises. We are to look to his promises to fill out our expectations, to put flesh on them, to give color to them, so that when we hear that God loves us, when we hear God say that he is a compassionate God who has compassion on his children, then we turn to his promises and see it confirmed. So great is his love for us that this is what he has promised to do for me. This is what he has promised to do for you or to do in me or to do in you. His promises are a perfect and beautiful expression of his love. But God, no, has not promised to give me a job or pay my bills or keep me from getting cancer. He's not promised that our children will all know and fear the Lord, and that our homes will always be happy. But he has promised to be with me. He has promised never, never to let me face any trial or sorrow or tragedy alone. God said to his people through the prophet Isaiah, when you pass through the waters... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. He doesn't say you won't walk through flame and flood, but he promises that you won't walk through it alone. He promises to be with you. And these are the kinds of promises that the author of Hebrews uses to encourage us as well. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God said that so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Men can actually do a lot to you, right? They can, but they cannot take from you what God has given. They cannot take him, and they cannot rob you of your inheritance. And they also cannot work against God's purposes in your life. Do you realize that? They cannot work against God's purposes in your life. Try as hard as they may, the strongest man or demon, the worst viruses or world economies or earthquakes or hurricanes or floods, with all of their power, cannot move one single degree off of the line of God's purposes in your life. They can only work for you. 
Because God works them all. He works them all. Every tragedy and every joy, he works them all for your good, for the good of those who love him. That is what he has promised. All things are your servants. All things must work for your good. That's what God promised. So be encouraged and be thankful. And then finally and briefly, our spirit of thankfulness is maintained through all of life's hardships, not only by an understanding of God's character and an understanding of his promises, but also by an understanding of his sovereignty. If God were good and kind and made many great and precious promises to us like he has, but did not have the power to actually do what he has said without fail, what encouragement would that bring to you and me? Not very much. If he has the heart to help, but not the strength to help, how thankful could you be? The God that we petition in prayer and plead with to come and help us is the almighty God who created the universe, who spoke billions of galaxies into existence with a single word. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help comes from him. He is a God who is not only willing to demonstrate mercy and compassion on his children and willing to do them good, nor is he a God only who has promised to do them good, but he is a God who is able to do and will certainly do everything that he has promised. Not one word of all that God has spoken will fall to the ground All will be accomplished. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And that includes his purposes for you. (coughs) Little old you. His purposes for you. He will do for you everything that he has promised. He will use the trials that he has sovereignly ordained for you before, before you ever came to be. And he will use them to make you more like Jesus than you'd ever have been without them. He prepared a perfect mix of joy and sorrow just for you. Fit, suited, just for you. To draw your heart away from the things of this world that are passing away. And to make you long for the new heavens and the new earth that will never pass away, to increase your longing for him and for home. And every good that you can possibly imagine, every good that you longed for, that you desired in this life, and that you prayed for in this life, prayers for joy, prayers for peace, prayers for greater holiness and reconciliation and 
health and life. They were not wrong prayers. And they did not go unheard. He will answer them. Because he's promised to give you all of that, even beyond what you could ask or imagine. He has made us heirs of life and of an eternal kingdom and of the world to come. And he will not fail to bring us into our inheritance. So we look forward with joy and thankfulness toward what he has promised, not only for the next life, but with thankfulness even in this present one, because even with all of its attendant trials and sorrows, God has shown us that he is good. He is good, and he has been good to us, and he will never stop being good to us. And should we ever doubt that, we need only to look to one place, to the cross, the most powerful proof of God's willingness to do us good is in the cross. As Paul says, if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? The cross, like nothing else, proves to us the, the heart of God for his children. May God use these truths to encourage us to pray, to continue steadfastly in it and not lose heart. And may they also encourage us in our prayers to be watchful, to keep our eyes open, expecting to see God answer and to act on our behalf. Because ours is a God who delights in helping those who are his. And may the reminder of all of these things also keep us thankful. Let's pray.